Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Talwar-Kapoor. I'm Sam Andre. And I'm Alvin Tedro. Today on the pod, Doug Ford's weird secret deal to sell a historic building in downtown Toronto. This is uh, I'm really excited personally about this topic. I'm hoping it will allow us to nerd out a little bit on the politics of public sector property disposition. Listeners, if you think that sounds exciting or not exciting, let me assure you it is in fact exciting and actually a really interesting case study of how the four government reaches into local planning, selectively adheres to its own principles, and is pursued nakedly political deals. More exciting than you might think. The Conservatives are also changing campaign finance in Ontario, increasing personal donations, the per vote subsidy, changing the way elections are to be uh, funded, and parties run their campaign, so big deal there. Excited to dive into that. Also want to talk about the Ontario government's new vision paper for social assistance transformation. The focus of the paper is on service delivery and not on the actual amount of money going to people, but it hasn't received a whole lot of attention in the media to date. Excited to highlight it on today's pod. But uh, stick around later on the pod because we're going to be talking to Toronto Centre MP candidate from the New Democratic Party, Brian Chang, who campaigned in the last by-election. And we'll be talking to Alvin about running a campaign in a pandemic, what that looks like, what politicians can take away from the experience. And given that we might be looking at an election this year, potentially super timely. I am now under quarantine again because we got a call after only seven days of my kids being in school. There was an outbreak on my kid's school bus and I had to go pick them up on Friday. And they and me being their only caregiver because my wife is a healthcare worker are now quarantined for the next 14 days. So I'm really looking forward to that. And also the fact that because their classes are still going without them, they have been assigned two weeks of asynchronous learning. So this is terrible in every possible way. <laughs> I feel like we need a dedicated running section, maybe like a Twitter account. Have you ever seen the Twitter account that's is the Skydome open? And it yeah. just says yes or no based on the thing. <laughs> I feel like we need it. Are Alvin's kids quarantined? Yes or no? <laughs> and we just updated on a weekly basis so that the many listeners who tune in for that update can just get that. It's ironic because in the entire year leading up uh, to last March, which was the you know convention where I ran for leader of the party, I was away so much. So I feel like it's karma and the world saying you were away as a father. You now need to be there all the time at every given hour of every single day for an entire year so yes i'm sure your kids are loving it and extremely pleased to be making up for that lost time no Uh, they've already asked when am i going to go away again and when is mom going to be home all the time (laughs) cool actually that is a great segue into uh the next election which the conservatives have introduced new legislation on how that election is to be worked campaign finance in ontario sam what are the new changes lot actually for people who are campaign nerds which i assume many of our listeners are i'm going to run through them all they're they're not in any really coherent order but there's a lot of we hate we hate coherent order on ontario lad <laughs> there's a lot of uh random changes all obviously related to the elections act so the biggest one that was in the news was that they are extending the per vote subsidies of public funding for the political parties out to 2024 keeping the 2018 rates constant you'll remember that the ford government had promised a couple of years back to eliminate the per vote subsidy uh, and phase it out over a few years uh, so they're not going to do that so the 63 cents per vote continues they say due to the financial impact of COVID-19, which is a bit curious because 
most people pointed out that the political parties have actually been doing fine on fundraising, but either here nor there, I'm sure all the political parties will be thrilled about that news. They're also doubling the personal contribution limits from the current 1650 for an individual to $3,300 per year. So that's a big move, obviously. They are right now, third parties are banned from uh, spending money on advertising six months ahead of the election. And a lot of the, the unions and, and business associations use that to do campaigning right up to the six month mark. They are proposing to push that back to 12 months. And we're really clear and punchy in the press release who they were aiming that at, which is clearly the unions. They also were increasing advanced voting days from a maximum of five to 10, quote unquote, based on need. So it sounds like they're going to give Elections Ontario some discretion to do that regionally as needed, which I thought was interesting. They're fixing this kind of weird loophole that existed with sitting independent MPPs where they couldn't fundraise outside of election periods or keep the surpluses from what they fundraised due to the fact they weren't tied to a political party. So they are, which I thought was actually quite gracious since most of the independents are their ex-former caucus members. They are fixing that basically. They are then doing a few kind of smaller things, but some of them are probably worth talking about a bit. So they are eliminating the need for party nomination candidates to submit a financial report only to required to submit registration papers. This was introduced back in 2017. So this isn't people running in the election, but just for the nomination. They're also, quote unquote, limiting the chief electoral officer's authority to reopen previously audited financial statements. Curious, no context about what that means. They are increasing the threshold for reporting individual contributions from a single donor publicly from $100 to $200. They are clarifying the ability of MPPs to keep their social media accounts going during an election, which I guess was subject of some questions. And this is, I think, positive. They are enabling municipal clerks to accept electronic registration. Right now, it has to be on paper. So some smaller things, but some also major changes and look forward to diving into it. I'm actually really surprised that they did a lot of these things. Uh, a lot of these things are actually good. And, uh, and and I think for those who might not know, but the the per vote subsidy, I think, is a much more democratizing way to fund and run political parties and elections. It means that smaller parties like the Green Party can have significant contributions just because people voted for them in the last election. And I think that's important because people with their vote can contribute to those parties, not only with their vote, but also with the subsidy. And that means that no vote is wasted and that there is a, a, a contribution to that movement, regardless of where that vote happens to be placed in the province. I, I do think it's curious that the personal contribution limit went up so much. It is $3,300 is not really affordable for a lot of people. That is a pretty high limit. And I think we need to monitor that to make sure how it gets taken advantage of. You're thinking of a CEO and their family of three kids can contribute maybe $15,000 now. That's a lot of influence. I think what they did with independent MPPs, like that just blew my mind that they actually did anything to support to support them, considering how many of them are former conservatives that got kicked out. That means Randy Hillier and all his batshit crazy tweets that he's been going on about the hoax of a pandemic and how we're all sheep for wearing masks can now fundraise. I guess that's good. But the threshold for reporting contributions, I think, is a little curious as well, because I don't think it's bad to have more transparency about who's donating to you and how much are they donating. Generally speaking, I think that this is all pretty good. I think the one thing I would say that they didn't necessarily address was around the needs during a pandemic. 
and Brian and I talked about this in the interview, but mail-in ballots, support for Elections Ontario, and all the different things they have to do to make up for the fact that we're still living in a pandemic and there still might be pandemic-related things to address come the next election. Yeah, I'm inclined to put this in the category of something that was, when we think about how the myriad of ways that the Conservative Party could have change the way elections work in this time. This is by far not the worst way it could have landed. The increase to the personal contributions does suck a little bit, and it does increase the power of those who are rich and have access to resources, for sure. But paired with the extension of the per-vote subsidy, really not that bad. And it means that we're not going to see a fundamental cratering of that support before the next election, which was on deck and would have really impacted uh, a lot of those uh, small parties. With this government, take small wins where you can get them. And this one, this did not seem to me to be something that would radically enhance their power. One question that I had actually when you're reading through this is, do the liberals qualify for the per vote subsidy, right? That oh, is yeah. a... It was keeping the party alive for a long time and and what would get the party back to a strong position without significant fundraising to compete in the next election. Parties take out about $10 million generally per general election provincially. So... The, the subsidy was definitely keeping them alive, given how they didn't have party status, didn't have that a legislative caucus service bureau support, which is in the millions of dollars if you have party status. This is interesting because this does definitely extend that life raft to the liberals uh, into past the next election. I think the liberals get about two million, the NDP about three, and then the PCs about five is how it breaks down annually. Yeah, no, my like for them to not have taken this opportunity to like totally kick the liberals while the liberals were down is an interesting like i do wonder how that reads into how they're thinking about the campaign and these kinds of things because it must mean they're feeling more confident in some way or, or they want the vote split to continue or right? they want the vote split to continue yeah, and, they need, and they know that the liberals need support in order to try to split the progressive vote on the other side i don't know what their strategy is around this but yeah. I, generally yeah. i think it's a good thing I, mean, I would love the per vote subsidy to replace donations yeah yeah, I think yeah, I think the individual contribution is too high, but but I think other than that, there's not a lot to to complain about. I did think, they increase Sam? Did they increase the tax receipt, the tax credit that you get? I think it's if they did, it, it's not. It wasn't in the news release. I don't think so. Obviously, the percentage would stay the same, but there is yeah diminishing returns after a while, as you saw. So. Yeah, it's seventy five percent for the first four hundred, and then it's fifty percent, and then it goes down to thirty three percent after that. Definitely diminishing returns uh, when you're getting into the three thousand dollar range. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, the, I think the only thing that's probably worth some scrutiny, and I, I hope journalists or somebody are picking it up, is the changes around party nominations and the financial audits without providing an explanation as to why they're doing that something doesn't smell and limiting the chief electoral authority to reopen previously audited financial statements is we all know you can find pretty much anybody to issue you a audited financial statement like that it just reads a bit sketchy unless there's some reason not to yeah yeah, no, I I would love to know what the thinking was behind that particular particular piece. So yeah, something that's not great could have been worse. Want to move us to something just terrible and weird. Last week, it came out that the Dominion Wheel and Foundries property on Eastern Avenue in the West Donlands in Toronto has been sold by the Ford government without a public bid. This has... Always in these stories, you run the danger of just being like seeming so Toronto centric. And that is like 
a little bit here, but what it says about what the Ford government interacts with planning is interesting. So the property itself is a historic, a designated historic building. It is a, your sort of classic urban industrial preserved building. If you want it, it has like these sort of glass sides with like wrought iron that is like very trendy. You can imagine like a brewery or a retail space going in. It's right in the middle of its like downtown Toronto. So it's like a very valuable property. And the community who lives around it was surprised when a demolition crew showed up in January. An injunction was filed by the community to halt the demolition pending a court hearing filed by the Neighborhood Association. The injunction was granted. During the court proceeding that came forward, the a heritage impact assessment that was released to the courts revealed that the province has already entered into a deal with a buyer without a public bid. So where they're at right now is the minister's office has come out and said, no, we haven't sold the property yet. But they have entered into what we think is an agreement of purchase and sale with a particular entity. They were pressed on that question specifically, and the Ford government did not deny that there's an agreement of purchase and sale. Of course, when this came out, it massively angered the community group who are uh, fighting to keep the property site as is, potentially use it for a community hub, and thought they were, I think, a little bit further ahead in that fight and had made some progress, only to find out in court that the Ford government has basically behind closed doors already arrived at deal with a buyer and the actual specific plans i think were for like a two or three apartment story a two or three apartment building a kind of structure with some retail built in interesting little saga here reminds me actually a lot of some things we used to issues we used to have in education curious for uh, what folks think here is this normal practice what do you read into the ford government's decision making process here Clearly what the government is doing with ministerial zoning orders is unprecedented. Like the examples of how the liberals used it was like a grocery store in Elliott Lake and things like that, like where it was pressing, like the zoning process could not, could not continue. It's the way that this government is using it is to basically supersede uh, that the local planning process and the appeals process. They say they're doing it only with the at the request of the, the affected municipality on non-provincial land, but they're doing it on provincial land however they want. But even if it is at the request of the municipality, that doesn't mean that it's not still going through the various appeals processes. I think they deserve all the scrutiny they're getting around that, and especially their close political relationship with the developers. It's clear what, what they're up to. I, I like Having said all that, we do need more housing in Ontario. We need more affordable housing. And there are times where perhaps the province should be so aggressive. I don't know, frankly, enough about the West Onlands to know if this is that case. But yeah, you don't go from uh, like never using a tool in this way to a brand new use of this tool in this way without, I think, opening yourselves up to legitimate questions. And, and their indignation at the response is a bit much to take. Yeah, yeah. I The ministerial zoning orders are such a interesting example of one of the many ways that this government is using tools at the table to override planning processes. I want to zoom up a little bit, though, to like just the like total lack of any kind of public bid as a segment of this and as well as I uh, like the use of zoning. The level of public bids mean that both the province was denied the assurance of the most possible revenue for this. So even from a fiscal conservative perspective, like you, you want to maximize the dollars. That's why you do a public bid process. The last thing I'll say is that the only assurance that we have that there is 
oh, there will be affordable housing. The Ford government has said that there's going to be affordable housing in this place, in this spot, but has not indicated how that will work. And in that scenario, it is completely open to the province to define how that affordable housing is going to work, the proportion of affordable housing that it will be. And whereas if it goes to the city, there is a more defined process there. And community space, which Ford has now promised in his remarks addressing this, is nowhere in the documentation. So if I'm a community group looking at this, I am not assured at all by any of the steps the Ford government has taken. At one point, it's a bit subtle, but like having lived through it when we were in government, I just want to make the point that it's tempting when you're in government to want to get involved in these local matters because you feel like they're taking forever they make the wrong decisions like it etc but i I always had to be reminded and it's i think true two of these ministerial zoning orders that by inserting the province into something that you've delegated locally you actually add more time and complexity to these processes because whenever we would do that there's state there's local stakeholders basically if the local actors know that there's actually a separate decision-making track, and all I have to do is get, get the ear of the minister or or the deputy or whatever, you actually add complexity and time to an already really complex process with a lot of stakeholders. And you really have to do that very judiciously. And I'm not convinced that's what they're doing here. No. And not to belabor it, but like how much I, that is so true, Sam. And like, how much time did like we spend in government meeting with like neighborhood associations, meeting with this? And when you actually think writ large about the draw that has on an office, like the minister's office that should be there for the province and the provincial interest as a whole, it is a real problem. And yeah, there's a reason you delegate it to these 400 municipalities because that it's, it's just people and time heavy work. And yeah. you, they, the, the province can't possibly get involved in every property across the province. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, something that we struggled to get right. And the Ford government appears to be not learning those lessons in any way, shape or form. A couple of years ago, the province decided to change how it deals with inclusionary zoning at the municipal level. And for folks listening that don't know what inclusionary zoning is, it basically, when you're building a, a new apartment building, for example, inclusionary zoning orders require developers to have a certain proportion of the housing to be affordable. And how that the mechanics of that then work are very complex, but under the former government, inclusionary zoning authorities were within the purview of municipalities, and they were just starting to be developed across the province. And with the new government, the the province took basically inclusionary zoning up. And now if the province or if municipalities are saying, yep, we want new inclusionary zoning orders here in this new development that we're looking at, they actually can't just compel developers to to do it they have to seek they have to seek permission from the province in order to do so and so to go back to Sam's point around the or the just the complexities that you add and the layers of administration and bureaucracy that you add that slows down the entire process first of all is is intense but secondly you actually never reach the you never actually get to the goal of of building more housing faster and so even in discussions around what is affordable, what the city of Toronto understands to be deeply affordable for people living in the city of Toronto is not necessarily the same definition of affordability that will be used by by the Ontario government or another order of government. And, and we've seen this time and time again, even with the federal government and announcements around, around new affordable housing units being 
uh, developed. And when you look at what the base rent is for some of these units, it's still like $2,000. And that is not, that's not affordable for so many people. And so I think even though this is issues around the foundry and the sale of the site in itself have its own complexities, it's it's an outcome of years of policy decisions that they've made, which is not going to yield, especially in the West Onlands, where you need affordable, deeply affordable housing. And so they're not going to necessarily get that. And if they do, it'll be years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a, a nice recipe for larger government, more Toronto-centric decision-making, which seems to be really not the brand that the PC party sells their voting base. Okay, quickly, uh, before we end, I wanted to turn us to last month's uh, paper from the Ministry of Children, Community, and Social Services, which was a vision paper for social assistance reform. Uh, the paper itself outlined how it envisioned so service delivery changes to take place across the social services sector to help people receiving social assistance access the benefits they need for their well-being. The ministry specifically hopes that these changes will help people with life stabilization and eventually help people enter the labor market. So going back to that very conservative conception of how do we get people off social assistance into a job seems to be part of the picture here. The focus is squarely about service delivery, not the amount of money that people are getting. And so because of that, the plan didn't really receive a ton of attention. It's pretty insidery. But Garima, I'm wondering if you can walk us through the main, like the main highlights, because there is probably some instructive stuff that we should know there. Yeah, sure. I'd say that there are three key areas of reform outlined in, in this vision paper. The first is uploading administration of financial benefits to the provincial government from municipalities. So as a result, municipalities would be responsible for caseworker management and managing the the service side for social assistance recipients and the broader population in need of support, but not necessarily have to deal with some of the more transactional stuff that caseworkers currently have to focus on in terms of administration of the actual financial benefit. That's going to be uploaded to the province. They're also focusing on collaboration and integration with services that enable, again, quote, life stabilization and well-being across various social service areas. This includes housing, child care, primary health care, mental health and addiction services, and tax filing support. And then thirdly, and again, this represents a significant shift in how case management currently happens, they're transferring all employment and training services to Employment Ontario. The Ministry of Training, Labor and Skills Development will is responsible for these transformations under the EO or Employment Ontario umbrella. And we've covered this on the pod before. All of this sounds very inside baseball-y and about just the mechanics of government. But I actually think that if done well, which is a big if, it can be promising because it it does seem to want to focus on the person and enable people's journey through the various systems that they need more seamlessly, but also recognize that if you're not, if you're not feeling well, and if you don't have a roof over your head, you're not going to be able to, to have the stability that you need to enter employment or get the job that that this government is really focused on when it comes to social assistance recipients. And I'd say for decades, advocates and thinkers in this space have focused on rates and the income that social assistance recipients receive for decades, which is 
absolutely necessary given how low the rates are. But I also don't think that we've paid enough attention to service delivery and the quality of services that people get. And so I think that it's time that we also focus on that equation because we haven't been focusing there. Just a couple of considerations for us to think about is similar to our previous conversation. It's unclear how municipalities will be funded and be affected under this framework. There are major human resources and collective bargaining implications that need to be resolved. And I'd say that for any of this to work, that the human resources and collective bargaining issues need to be need to be dealt with effectively and need to be dealt with compassionately given the intense amount of pressure that frontline um, service providers face and ultimately and when we've covered this in the, on the pod before the vision ultimately requires investments in social services like housing social assistance and childcare otherwise if you're trying to connect people to childcare or housing, right now you're just you're just adding them onto a wait list. And that doesn't make any sense. To get through a a subsidized housing wait list can take years. And so how are you stabilizing the the lives of people who need access to these supports before they can meaningfully start looking for a job if all you're doing is adding them to a wait list? It doesn't make sense. And so you need investments in this space. We know from our coverage of the FAO's winter fiscal and economic outlook for 2021 that the province doesn't actually have a plan for those types of investments. So I'll leave it at that and ask you friends, what do you think about all of this outside of the wonky nature of some of the things that are discussed? Yeah, like when I think about, I do... Like this government, actually, particularly MCSS, has a way of rolling out a policy paper or an approach that kind of says the right things at a high level. And I kind of land in that place of, okay, this seems like good for a conservative government. It's about administrative efficiencies. But I think anyone who's looked at this sector can agree that there are lots of ways we could make the way that we deliver aid to people better, more human-centered, more efficient. So like that is a good idea. The piece in it that I, I worry a lot about in, in is how they are, how intentionally and they're going to do that work given well, we're, that we know that this client base is a low priority for this government. It's not where they're putting dollars. It's not where they're like, you can commission anyone to write a, a policy paper that builds on the, a lot of the work that has been done to, I think, get you to this space. But to your point, if you, unless you're like willing to sort out the union dynamics in the upload in an intentional way that creates buy-in to a change unless you are willing to invest a lot upfront in this kind of, and I know they're doing some stuff with technology in the background here too, which is going to significantly impact things. I worry that the devil is all in the details here. Like the vision seems fine, but without the dollars, without the investment, and especially without the sort of like central care that I think this, a government should deliver this, I worry that you start mixing the deck chairs around and you end up with a mess at the end of this as opposed to uh, something better, even though you had a vision that I think in this paper largely makes sense. It's missing the adequacy question, but even without addressing the adequacy question, 
like the vision can you can end up further away from your vision than closer to it even though you have potentially the right vision yeah i'm more maybe more positive than you chris obviously the devil's in the details but this sort of thing is going to be led by the bureaucracy anyway right this isn't this nothing about this is inherently political and i think i so people on the pod may or may not know this but i used to manage osap which is similar in lots of ways in the administration aside of cutting checks to many Ontarians. And because there are clients that are on both OSEP and social assistance, I would have many a meeting with my counterparts to figure out handoffs and and rules and policies and things like that. And we always had so much better insight into how our program worked than they did because they don't deliver any part of it, really. Like the municipalities deliver it from kind of soup to nuts. Uh, They just set the policy. And so they're flying blind a lot of the times. And I actually think it probably contributes to some of the disconnect in social assistance policy versus reality. So I think this is overall quite a good thing because there's really no reason why all the municipalities are delivering the same IT system over and over again. Is this the most important thing that's going on in social assistance? Is adequacy and the right of supports, of course, more important? Yes. But on this, I, f- I feel like it could actually be quite a good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think that's fair. I think if the if I if we're entering into a world where the bureaucracy has a really firm vision of how they want to roll things out, competent management of the project, like that is an alternate. That is certainly where I hope we where I hope we're sailing. That if this is something that is not being managed out of the minister's office, then and those partnership the the bureaucracy knows how to make those partnerships and create it. I guess it's it boils down to the competency of whomever is managing the change process here. And that is a TBD. I don't know. I'm being pessimistic about it because I have been trained. This government has trained me to be pessimistic about logistical matters, but, and policy matters. But I, but I like, I, I don't think you're wrong, Sam. I think that is definitely a possibility and there, there is definitely potential for good here. Yeah. I would, I would say what the promise is, And whether that's achieved also depends on what outside stakeholders pressure the government to actually do. And so the focus on adequacy and rates needs to continue and be relentless. But I think when I think about discussion of quality of services across the the public services, not enough attention is, is paid to the quality of public services that are afforded to people living in poverty. And that, and that is, I think fundamentally wrong and needs to be a big part of the equation. If it doesn't matter how high the rates are, if rents continue to be unregulated and there is in and rents can this year, we're seeing even though there is a rent freeze across the the province has agreed to above guideline increases for tons of of requests. And without subsidized housing or access to affordable housing and really ensuring that those housing units are of high quality or ensuring that people have access to childcare support so that they can actually go to work is critical. And we, I say that as a sector or as stakeholders, we haven't made those connections well enough. And so if we, if the vision for the most part, of course, the devils are in the details or the devil is in the details, but we would, we really have to put pressure on, not on the government, not only politically, but also understand from the bureau 
from the bureaucracy side at the provincial level and in your local municipalities, who's doing what. And that's really hard. That's a lot of hard work, but it, yeah. it requires focused attention. This podcast of ours has run for over 100 episodes across five seasons. We've had a few hosts come and go, a number of notable guests, but most importantly, listeners like you joining us along the way. A number of you are Patreon supporters, and we wanted to take a second to thank you for your contributions. We do this pod because we love talking about the issues and discussing solutions that can help real people in this province. 100% of your donation goes back into the pod, paying for things like our technology platforms, hosting, editing software, equipment, and upkeep. And we want to keep doing quality podcasts for you. So please, for those of you who are able, consider joining our group of Patreon supporters so we can keep improving this show for you, our dear listeners. Please go to patreon.com slash Ontario Lab. And now, back to our show. And welcome back. Joining us on Ontario Loud is Brian Chang. Brian is a queer, working-class Chinese-Jamaican man who lives in Toronto Centre with his partner, Jeff. He lives with a facial difference, also known as a facial disability. If you don't know what that is, Google it, just like I did before this interview. In 2017, 2019, and 2020, he was a candidate for Canada's New Democratic Party. He has environmental degrees from the University of Toronto and York University. Currently, Brian is a research associate at SEIU Healthcare, helping to fight for enhancements to the 60,000 frontline healthcare workers across Ontario. He's also an active musician. Brian, welcome to Ontario Loud. Hi, Alvin. It's great to see you. Great to be here. So just tell me, how are you feeling? How are you coping with the pandemic so far? It's been uh, challenging. So I work for Healthcare Union. We represent most of the frontline healthcare workers from RPNs to PSWs to dietary aids in long-term care and retirement homes across Ontario. But I also had the unique experience of starting this job at SEIU Healthcare on March 16th, 2020. And literally two days later, I packed up. Monday, I started. The Tuesday, I packed up my office. And the Wednesday, everybody was on a work-from-home order. So learning this job on the fly and, and learning it through a time when everything was recreated because we all had to gear our work towards supporting members and through the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been wacky. It's been a lot. And it's been relentless. There has not been... Uh, a break for healthcare workers over the course of the last uh, last year now and those that support them. I want to get into the healthcare workers piece maybe later on, but we invited you here today because as a political and policy podcast, we want to stay up to date and current with how things are going and, and really how things are changing, especially during COVID-19. So you had the privilege of running during the 2020 by-election in Toronto Centre after the resignation of uh, the former finance minister, Bill Morneau. I wonder if you can walk through a bit of how campaigning during the pandemic was different, what you had to adjust to, because as somebody who's knocked on a lot of doors as well and had to make a lot of calls. I understand how important it is to have that face-to-face with people. What can you do and how does it feel when you can't make that connection with people? The by-election was wacky. That's the word I use a lot to describe that experience. There wasn't anything quite like it. And none of us, after Bill Morneau had basically resigned as a result of everything that was going on with the WE scandal and the federal liberals, 
we they had there was a six month period in which Trudeau could have called the by election, and actually that six months would have put them at February of February twentieth, I believe, is the day the last day that the election could have been held. But nobody was expecting it to be called as soon as it was. And if people remember, the Parliament was prorogued. It, there was a break over the summer, and we didn't know when it was going to get called back. So actually, this this by election was called before the sitting resumed. So people didn't know this was coming. It caught us all off guard. I think it caught a lot of uh, even liberals off guard as well too. And one of the very first things that I did as a campaign and I put my mind to was that we needed to develop a COVID-19 safety policy. So to govern all of the work that we were doing and to really to make sure that that not only I was safe, the people we were interacting with were safe and that our volunteers were safe. And I'm proud and happy to say that over the course of, uh, of the, the time that we were campaigning, nobody, uh, none of the, none of our, our volunteers or people affiliated with our campaign tested positive. So I think we, we did a good job of being able to make sure that we did and participated in democracy as safely as possible without increasing the risk of people contracting the, the disease. So what did you do, practically speaking? Did you knock on doors? Were you at subway stations and passing out literature? How was that sort of how, how was that part of the strategy different? There were a number of things. We had resources, so we could have opened a campaign office. The Liberals did, for example. But we didn't feel comfortable putting people in a space, not staff, not volunteers, not myself, like putting us into a space where we would all be on a regular basis. Also, for anybody who doesn't know Toronto Centre, it's the smallest geographic riding in the entire country. But there are over 100,000 people that live within these 10 square kilometres. Everything is vertical, which means that if you're going into buildings, you're worrying about elevators. It means you have to worry about contact with doors. If you're standing in front of somebody's door in a condo, you can't actually be two meters away from them because there isn't that much space in the hallway. So we decided right off the bat that canvassing was not safe and it wasn't something that we could we could partake in. I can't speak to the other campaigns because we did see them do a variety of different activities, but for my campaign in particular, we did not do canvassing within side of buildings. There are some outdoor areas that are homes, for example, where you could knock on a door and then go to the bottom of the stairs and then wait for the person to, uh, to answer. And then, But it gets awkward because then you're yelling at somebody like two meters away um, and they can't always hear you and you're wearing a mask and whatnot. The digital game, really, we had to up that. And it was something I think that we did quite effectively. And one thing that was that's new that we can do now is Zoom rallies, a kind of idea of Zoom rallies. So while we were campaigning, Jigmeet was participating in a rally that we had in, in that my campaign put on from BC, where he was stumping for the BC NDP, where they were having their election simultaneously. And then here in Toronto Centre, Kristen Wong Tam joined us as well, too, who lives in the riding. Uh, and then myself, who was in the riding as well, too. And that's something cool that we couldn't have been we couldn't have done without without using technology. Yeah, so that's really neat. It's fantastic to hear that the democratic process is still alive and well despite a pandemic, and you're trying to find other ways to engage people. Um, do you think there are any? Do you think are there any benefits to campaigning during a pandemic? I don't know about that. So one thing that happens, and I think that this is a problem with the way that people treat the political system, is that you don't know elections are happening. Even during general elections, even all of the news that's put out there, Elections Canada will put out ads and, and whatnot that an election is coming up. And then you still get those people on election day who are just like, oh, today's election day, I can vote. And it's just, it's confusing for those of us who are involved in politics, who, who do this work. But I think one of the downsides of, of, of a pandemic election is that all of that work we're going to are to remind people that there is an election, even if they're not voting for you. It's That's part of the democratic process. To see election signs out there, to see campaign teams and volunteers knocking on doors and whatnot. And I think the voter turnout was really bad in, in this particular election. I, we didn't, we, I think we just cracked just over 30%. And Marcy Ian, who ended up winning, actually won with less votes than I got in 2019. So just a year pre previous. So it gives you an idea of just 
how impacted voters were. And one other thing that happened in the time, and people probably won't remember this, was that there was all of this talk about a full election being called at the time. And the question was being put to the NDP about whether they would support. And one of the conditions of us, of the NDP supporting the, the Liberals at that point in time was for the creation and expansion of the of, of the financial recovery program. So there's the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, Canada Recovery Benefit, Canada Caregiver Benefit. All of these were conditions that the NDP really fought for and were able to secure. And as a result, we supported the government and it didn't fall. But so many people in the news heard that as the election isn't happening anymore. The election isn't happening anymore. The election isn't happening anymore. So we're getting people on election by election day in Toronto Centre who were just like, I thought it was cancelled. I thought it wasn't happening. They, everybody said it was cancelled. And so they didn't vote. And that's really heartbreaking because it just, there are so many barriers to people participating in our political system as it is. To have that, to hear those people really not know was really unfortunate and just shows that there's a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that people can engage in our democratic process in a meaningful way. Brian, as a candidate who ran during a pandemic, I wonder if you can talk about your experience with Elections Canada and how did they react uh, to a pandemic campaign? And I wonder if this has changed your view at all or, or added to your view around the need for democratic reform here in Canada and you know what those options should be. Yeah, so the uh, I mean, electoral reform is something that I have always I've always pushed for, and I will continue to fight for and advocate for because I think it's just it's absolutely essential that we have that so people who feel that their voice is actually heard in our system. When it comes to Elections Canada, I think there's so much so many opportunities. So they were ill prepared for this as well too. I think they did their best. For those who went into a polling station, everything was very spaced out. Everything was very separate. But another thing that you need to think about is that so many so many of the places that people normally voted at this was also a problem for people is that the school that the no schools were used in Toronto center for vote for polling station they were not the the TDSB TCDSB did not allow the school boards did not allow polling stations to be used so places where people have voted all of their life we're not, we're no longer polling stations. So then they were moving instead to hotels, places were going far away. We were seeing polls where people were, were, were like had to walk three or four blocks in order to get, in order to vote. Meanwhile, there was a polling station that was much closer in a church nearby. There, there are those, those kind of physical kind of placement barriers. Also, it meant that People who voted, a lot of condos, because they're so large, they vote actually, like in my building, we vote in our party room, but no condo allowed that in, in this time around because it, all the party rooms are closed. And I'll say something about mail ballots, because I think that's so important that this should be something that, that needs to be addressed, that the mail ballots, in order to request it, you have to go in person to the Elections Canada office to request a mail ballot, which is just absolutely bizarre. And if you didn't want to go through that process, then you had to find a notary, a public notary, or somebody or, or a legal professional to notarize that that form so that you could then mail that to Elections Canada so that they could then send you a mail ballot. I think that's why we saw what versus the BC the BC numbers where there were were hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots. In Toronto Centre, there were only 326 mail ballots, period. During a time of pandemic, 326 is not enough. That's not. And so it just shows you that there should have been, there probably would have been thousands. In the recent Scarborough Agent Court by-election in the city of Toronto, there were over 4,000 mail-in ballots requested, for example. So to, to put that in perspective, 326 versus 4,000, just three months later, shows you the just that this this option wasn't available in an accessible manner for people who needed it. Yeah. 
So clearly they're picking up on some things, although I know Elections Canada, Elections Ontario, they're a little slow to to move on things. But there's a very real possibility that we're going into an election, a general yes. election nationally during a pandemic, whether it's this late spring, early summer or into the fall. I don't think all the social distancing rules will still be will be gone. What do you think they need to do in order to make sure that the democratic process is fair and, and everyone has access to vote. Yeah, and I think that's going to vary depending on where you are. So New Brunswick also had an election over the pandemic and that went and people voted relatively the same that they always have without major issue. BC had an, had an election as well too and there was in-person voting, but they also made it a lot easier for people to get mail ballots. So there are ways to make sure that people can do that. What it means is that people need that extra head time because if ballots need to be received by election day, they need to be they need to be mailed out within the week prior. Mail also goes a lot slower in some parts of the country than others. And then if you need to get that ballot in the first place, then that's a, a week after you request it, you need to give that. So if you're thinking about head time that we need to build into this, you're talking about weeks that people need to consider in order to think about requesting a ballot and then being able to return it in time for it to count. Thoughts on online voting? It's a pretty polarized topic. I wouldn't. Okay, well, if we can get <laughs> internet service to everybody that's reliable right across the board, then sure. But I, I think it's, it's one of those problems where if you're in, in parts of rural Ontario, you do not have internet connection. So you can't watch YouTube. Like the internet service is so abysmal that you can't watch YouTube. If you're talking about Indigenous communities who don't have access to, to broadband internet, I don't know how we would be able to allow them to vote. It's possible there could be some hybrids. Like we a lot of us are familiar with online voting. It's how we do things like in internal party within some electoral district associations is how we do uh, voting as well too. And, and there's a, there's lots of different options for that. I, I would want to see something comprehensive and very detailed so that we would know what we were, what we were getting into and that what people were participating in. And then of course, having options as well to you as in mail-in ballots, lots of advanced voting as well too, maybe additional days. And then also some people just will show up and just vote in person on the day of because that's just what they do on election day. So we have to make sure that we can meet people no matter where they are across that um, spectrum. And then very importantly as well too, and this was a challenge, was that there were no special conditions made for, for, for seniors in long-term care homes to be able to participate in the electoral system because visitors weren't allowed. So you're talking about, in, in, there's a thousand, there are 78,000 long-term care beds across the province. And, and I don't even know how many there are across the country, but there has to be a comprehensive way and a safe way for those people to be able to, to, to have their, their vote heard. And then, and for people who are COVID-19 positive, shouldn't be a removal of your democratic right to participate in the system. So how do we make sure that those people who are infected are able to participate in the system as well, too? And I think Elections Canada, I don't envy the amount of work that they have to do. I'm confident that they can do that, do that work. But I also think that it there is scrutiny that needs to be provided. There needs to be comprehensiveness that's part of that as well, too. And, and parties have to do their best as well, too, to make sure that those systems are not are not unduly criticized for political gain, as we've seen in the U.S. when candidates attack the democratic system itself, it can be very, it can be very harmful. Now, understanding that in Ontario, and I know you're a federal candidate, but a lot of things are obviously affected by the provincial government and your your professional work is in the healthcare space. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you want to comment a little bit, as we were alluding to earlier, around this government's pandemic response, how it has or has not supported workers, PSW, frontline healthcare workers. My, my partner is a frontline healthcare worker, and they were talking about pandemic pay for months before they got anything real. And we were talking about PSW increases in, in 
in in their wages, but only temporarily. You want to throw them under the bus? This is your chance here. Yeah, and there's so much, and it's we didn't get here overnight. Like there were continuous uh, years and decades of, of of issues that got us here to this point. I think one thing we'll talk off right off the bat is the fact that PSWs are horribly underpaid. You're talking about people who are responsible for other people's healthcare who are being paid $16.50 an hour. That's unacceptable. And that that is something that governments have allowed and that we're seeing all of this for-profit care and these huge... I don't think people realize that Chartwell, Chartwell Retirement Residences, Siena Senior Living, Extended Care, that these aren't healthcare companies. They may call themselves healthcare companies, but they're real estate income trusts. Their profits come from real estate and charging rents to people. And those rents happen to be uh, captive audiences who are elders in need. And then that money, a, a good portion of that money comes from the provincial government, but a good portion of that also comes from those residents themselves who are paying for the, the privilege of having access to that healthcare. I don't think that's a model of how we can move forward. If you want to think uh, even further back as well, too, it's that we saw people will also be surprised that there are roughly about 78,000 units of affordable, of sorry, of long-term care homes, long-term care beds right now, there's about 78,000. And if you were to go back almost 20 years, there were about 78,000 as well, too. There actually hasn't been a whole lot of growth. And that's because the previous liberal governments, not conservatives, the conservatives governments didn't do any expansion, they privatized the system, but it's the liberal governments who didn't implement new beds. They decided the home care was what they wanted to focus on instead. So we saw a lot of these homes fall into disrepair. I think people would be appalled that there are four, like four, four bed ward rooms. That is a standard. And we call them class B and C homes. And there are so many of those. And it's also one of the reasons why COVID-19 has been so rapid is because when you have one infection in a room where four people are all within a meter of, of each other, they're going to get it. And, and we saw that happen um, time and time again. So there's so much that we can do in order to, to, to not just reform, but fundamentally, fundamentally reshape the system to actually put healthcare first, not profits, and then really make sure that we're doing our best to support elders to have a really good end of care life. And there's tons of proposals that are out there and I won't go into detail on those because people can check out uh, the Ontario NDP platform. They're talking about long-term national standards at the federal level as well too. But one thing's for sure, for-profit care has not worked and, and that's been really clear over the course of the pandemic. And we need to make sure that we tackle that first because if shareholders are making shit tons of money, then it's just, it's unacceptable that, that the the worst outcomes are coming from for-profit homes which have made record revenue who are making tons of money off the Canada emergency wage subsidy who are making tons of money off of PPE provided by uh, the provincial and federal governments they're making tons of money off of staffing and 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 training and emergency support and we haven't even talked about the Canadian armed forces and the work they provided to help support these homes in crisis so there there's a lot but we need to start doing that work and not just letting it fester away so I, I want to tie this back because obviously we know and we've seen and we've talked about on this show that the pandemic has adversely affected equity groups. And when I say that, I, people of color, uh, new Canadians, especially in and around the GTA. And I want to touch on you know, your thoughts on representation and on diversity, because I'm aware that the two of us are having this conversation right now. And we're two Canadians of Asian descent who both ran for, for high political office here in this country. And, and that's good. And that means something to people. And I know it means something to, to me and to, to the communities that we both represent. But Toronto Centre is a very diverse place. And you are also running against uh, two black women. I just want you to talk a little bit about how important it was for people to see that, that representation on the ballot. And I talked about this during the election as well, too, but it was actually 
a really interesting moment for for the West Indian community in in Canada, where the three candidates were of West Indian descent in some way, shape, or form. So my family is Chinese Jamaican. My parents and and my grandparents on 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 both sides have a long history in Jamaica. And the other two candidates, Marcy Ian and Annami Paul, also have have to have uh, West Indian heritage as well too. And I think that's really important because it shows the diversity of the voices that we're bringing. And I think that and you can also look at us and see very different policy views. Annami Paul and I have very different approaches to the way the policy should work. And Marcy Ian and I have very different policy uh, approaches. And that's and that's okay. They're, the color of your skin doesn't determine the way that you vote. Really, it's about the ideas that you bring to the table. And I think that the diversity is a diversity of ideas as well, too. And that's really important. I think for me as a queer man, running in Toronto Centre is important as well, too. We might not find queer candidates or be able to get them to a place of success in places outside of large urban centres. That isn't to say it doesn't happen, but it would be much harder than in somewhere, for example, in downtown Toronto, where we have the largest queer population. I think that's also important because of the issues that we're facing here as well, too, aren't going to be the issues of racialized men who are missing and being murdered and forgotten by the police force, that's not something that people are paying attention to in Barrie, right? They're not paying attention to it in Windsor. It's something that is downtown Toronto, and it's an issue that our community first raised. Members of the community raised that, and that's why it became an issue. And that's the kind of representation that we need, somebody who recognizes, comes from the area. And I think it was important as well, too, that during both in 2019 and 2020, Enemy and Marcy, neither of them have confirmed that they live in the riding because I don't think that they do. That, and that's, that is just representative of people who don't understand what's going on in those particular neighborhoods. And I think it, there's an importance in living in the community because you have direct relationships to it. I don't have to pretend to know what's going on in the village and just on the edge of it, right? I don't have to pretend to know what's going on in Regent Park. I have friends who are who I routinely go down there in non pandemic times to see. And I think that's, that brings a real lived experience to, to, to our communities. But when it comes to diverse experiences as well, too, I think it just means that we pay attention to policy and we amplify the voices of other people in different ways. It's not about me talking, for example, for or about Indigenous people. It's about me making sure that I'm amplifying those voices that are already out there. It's not about me just being a queer person uh, or just a Chinese person or a Jamaican person or separating all these parts of my identity. It's all of it together that means that I pay attention to policy in a different way that other people might not. And then I hope that people would recognize that I would then be more likely to be on their side to vote for things that are important, like farmer care, the need for affordable housing, decriminalization of drugs, and so many other issues that really make sure that we're moving our, our communities further ahead and not getting further behind. There wasn't a ton of news around your by-election, but when there was, it was often about the former finance minister or the newly elected Green Party leader who ran against you. And one of the stories that I remember that came out of that was the leader's courtesy. And that story had legs for a little while was people were saying the party was not giving the right courtesies and they should be doing that and this and the other thing. And that bothered me because as we were just talking about, you you have your own right to run in a campaign and, and you are representing a, a different community and you have your experiences and that's valid. And it's up to the voters to decide whether or not they want to support that. And I think absolutely it's a way and implying that. Um, implying something different and something nefarious or something that has to be done on a backroom deal, I don't think is the way it should be done. But I just kind of wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. 
Yeah, I was surprised that it had as many legs as it did. And it was just messaging from the Green Party that was not not correct. The leadership courtesy is not a, this isn't a rule. This is not something that happens. There's a reason we have separate political parties. It's so that, and there's a reason why those political parties have seats and representation across the country because people support us um, and they vote for us in different ways. Now, what's really important is it comes down to is that the candidates in the riding should be chosen by the members. They shouldn't be chosen in the back rooms of Ottawa. They shouldn't be, candidates shouldn't be coronated in the back rooms of Ottawa. And that's really what I think the Greens were pushing for here, that they believe that they had a right to choose who the candidate should be and that candidate should come at the expense of another party. And again, let me say this very clearly, this was never something that they ever approached the NDP about. They never, the Greens never consulted with the NDP. They never asked us, they never did anything. They just put it out into the world and then rolled with it and took the moral high ground that they were doing something correct and that every and that the NDP and myself were wrong for this. But it, it, it really is about making sure that people in the riding have a right and the members here, the NDP members chose me to be their candidate. And it shouldn't be in the back rooms of Ottawa to choose who their candidate should be. You're going to run in uh, 2021 or 2022? Who knows when the election will be? My plan is to, to continue to be involved with the Toronto Centre NDP and to put my name forward whenever a chance might. So, Brian, um, before we let you go, I've got a bunch of uh, rapid fire questions for you. Yes, one, two, one, two words as quickly as possible, and, and we'll see how quickly we can get through this. We haven't done a great job with rapid fire yet, but we're, this is a segment we're working on. So hopefully we can get this done. I guess cue the rapid fire music. So we've got Brian Chang, uh, NDP candidate for Toronto Centre. Where's the best place to eat in your riding? Too many, too many choices. Uh, choose a cuisine. Choose a cuisine? Best Asian place to eat. I'm going to say Kinton Ramen. It's very, it's been really important. <laughs> if you could snap your fingers to change one thing, anything at all in this country, what would it be? Getting rid of fossil fuels. So issues, you can say you'd support that no way in hell or pass. Universal childcare. <laughs> yes. Uh, universal basic income. Uh, guaranteed livable basic income. Yes. Great. I think we would have been on the same page, <laughs> which I don't know what that says about me or it says about you, but I think both progressive people trying to get the best things done. Name a non-NDP pol politician that you most admire. AOC. Or do they have to be Canadian? Okay. Well, there, are there American or... You can pick a Canadian. Pramila well. Jayapal. Sorry? Let's go with Pramila Jayapal. Okay. The representative from Seattle. Fantastic. Okay, that was rapid fire. I think that went pretty good. So I want to thank Brian for coming on to the show. Again, Brian was the former candidate for Toronto Centre for the NDP in the last uh, several elections. He's currently a research associate at SEIU Healthcare, and he's fighting for the healthcare workers in Toronto. Thank you very much for coming on to the show, Brian. All right, take care. That's all the time we have for today. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Karima Tawa Kapoor, Sam Angry. And myself, Alvin Tucker. Thanks to our researcher, Harmon Mundi, and of course, our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe.